Thanks for downloading a 3CR podcast. 3CR is an independent community radio station based in Melbourne, Australia. We need your financial support to keep going. Go to www.3cr.org.au for more information and to donate online. Now stay tuned for your 3CR podcast. It's about 15 seconds away from 4 o'clock. Joan Bartlett with you till 6 tonight. Thanks to Chris. Today... Massacre of Palestinians once again, this time on the Gaza-Israel border. I'll be speaking with Dr. Bassam Dali from the Australian-Palestine Advocacy Network. The connection between the huge giant hydrogen bomb that was tested by the British in the Pacific 60 years ago and the 25th meeting of the Commonwealth Heads of Government which is going to take place this month also, starting on the 16th of April. Journalist and researcher Nick McClellan will be explaining all. Western Suburbs Environment Group is taking the EPA to VCAT over the Werribee tip expansion, and we like to think of a landfill as a landfill, but no, they're going to have landfill mountains and a lot of people very unhappy about that. Timor-Leste permaculturist Ego Lemon, we heard last week, Lemos, I'm sorry, we heard last week Rosemary Morrow talking about many of the countries that she's worked in. Well, today it's Timor-Leste with Ego. But first, Mr Kevin Healy with his week that was. A week, Jane, listener, when breaking news, a week that was exclusive. The public prosecutor has just agreed with the, uh, sorry, the police decision not to prosecute the person who killed a couple and their children who were attempting to break into the killer's property. The murdered family had owned the property before the family who killed them seized the property and promptly and legally threw them out. This family attempted to enter the property and terrorise my family on the ridiculous claim that the property had been their property and they selfishly wanted to move back in. A flagrant disregard for and violation of the law. Their deaths are their own fault because this family deliberately placed itself in danger to force a peace lover like me to kill them. All of our most reasonable attempts to resolve this matter have been met with terrorism, with unreasonable demands like returning to what is legally our property. We are more than happy for them to have a home. Their terrorism of my family is so threatening that every night we have been forced to move, move them on from their gutters to prevent violence against us. The prosecutor praised the family for its restraint. My investigation showed that the children of the dead terrorist family threw stones at the property from across the road. I am recommending the family which now occupies the property deserves a medal and commendation for its restraint and limited and appropriate use of necessary violence in wiping out the entire family. The prosecutor did say one unresolved aspect of the occupier protecting the property was the final words, or in fact word, of the dying terrorists. Nakba! We're still investigating what that meant. Should any information on that investigation come to light during our broadcast, we'll put it straight to air. 
Moving to the Middle East, where anti-terrorism is being assisted with a little help from True Blue as the Minister for Offensive Behaviour and Trained Killing, same thing, Maurice Payne for them, says the killing of civilians in Iraq, where we're not at war, so we're just bombing the odd city here and there, civilians, a newly married couple and injuries to two non-dear little children, not conceived in the image of the dear baby Jesus, so why do they even matter? Well, more than likely killing, according to the big train killers, was due to a complex circumstance, and well, after all, it was in a war zone. Must have been a mopping up operation, because we all know it was mission accomplished in Iraq 15 years ago like the other mopping-up operations in which the cream of true blue youth, brave young men and women in uniform, life of the party trained killers, have murdered or, sorry, faced complex circumstances in a war zone. And they took all precautions and believed there were no civilians in this house we bombed. Apparently you can see a lot looking down at a city from a few thousand feet in the old. And the last thing you'd expect to find in a city would be civilians. So it's their own fault for being there, lot like that family looking over the fence into its ex-property. But all's well that ends well. Marie said she regrets the deaths, well, more than likely deaths, so that'll make them feel better. For those of us not being knackbarred, we just have to dust ourselves off and attempt to get on with our lives. Lives that will be so inferior to what they could have been after that panacea to all that is wrong with our lives, tax cuts for the filthy rich, was rejected by a myopic senate, casting us back to our miserable existences when those who have nothing but the common good in mind offered us the panacea. Why, caring employers promised they would invest, create jobs, raise wages to stellar levels, or, as they said, ultimately increase wages, and one of our very favourites in its well-off from the True Blue Aussie Industry Profits Group assured us, once in place, these investments would underwrite improvements in employment and productivity and would lay the foundation for improvements in real wages and living standards. So what more assurance do we need that cutting taxes for the filthy rich is all about us? True altruism. OK, OK, they didn't quite spell out what ultimately and lay the foundation for meant. Just how long the non-filthy rich might have to wait for the famous yellow drops to trickle down, although in this case a promised avalanche of yellow. And if only that myopic Senate had done what this country needs, then ultimately, after laying the foundation, the caring business class would tell us when the time is right for those massive wage in wage rises, showing how critical tax cuts for the filthy rich are, because without them, for poor caring employers, the time for any wage increase has never been quite right in living memory, showing just how caring, caring employers are. Selfish, selflessly calling for tax cuts for themselves just so they can achieve what they've always wanted to achieve, declare the time is right for wage increases for the riffraff. Just a bit unfortunate then that 
leak of a secret True Blue Aussie Business Profits Council survey showed 80% of the business profits lot said they would hand a tax windfall to shareholders and themselves. And only 17% said they would increase wages, but there is a simple explanation. The survey was incomplete, the Profits Council said, and the pledge to senators about massive investment in jobs and wages by the same caring employers who said in the survey they would not increase jobs and wages was what mattered, not some silly incomplete survey leaving us to wonder why they bothered to do the survey in the first place but it must have had something to do with how they care for all of us and I'm sick of people saying why do caring employers and the filthy rich carry on about tax cuts when they don't pay any in the first place doesn't it show their ignorance of the real world Speaking of the trickle-down effect, those drops of yellow liquid, more good news in the champions of the working-class department. We now have Amanda Stoker to fight for the riffraff. Amanda who? Amanda Stoker. She's the new Her Most Gracious Majesty's Land Senator, replacing former Attorney General George Brandy's brain. Lawyer, former associate for that delightful and delightfully progressive High Court beak, Ian Cullinan, who nominates her political heroes as the little bald-headed bloke who used to be big supremo back in the last dark ages and Maggie Thatchtear. I come from a generation of young politicians inspired by the little bald-headed bloke's era. And for people to reach their full potential, she wants True Blue Aussie to have as little government as possible. So, won't she be a treat? And if only those tax cuts for the filthy rich had been passed, True Blue Aussie would have had as little government as possible, because it couldn't afford anything else. Although, good news. I'm prepared to bet the tax cuts have only been delayed because True Blue Aussie workers and the needy are in safe hands when Darren Lynchum is out to save them. Darren, Amanda, it just keeps getting better. The Easter spirit of love thy neighbour prevalent as US of the UN of the US of the world big supremo Donald Trample the poor nominates the first woman to be nominated to head the good old CIA. Gina hospitalised them, whose main claim to fame seems to be running a torture program for the good old CIA in a secret Thai prison. Ideal qualification for the job. And let's hope Capitol Hill approves her appointment, um, while no praise, no heartfelt congratulations for another young woman, Brazil's 38-year-old human rights advocate and fighter for the poor, particularly in the favelas, Marielle Franco. Given the traditional recognition for those who fight for human rights and the impoverished, moaned down in a hail of bullets, the modern form of extrajudicial crucifixion. And surprise, surprise... The bullets turned out to be from a delivery sent to the, uh, sorry, the police, the paramilitary force. Who would have thought, for we all know the police don't do that sort of thing, but there is a simple explanation. Upon checking, the police and the government and the non-poor, the filthy rich said, yes, we got it. The bullets had been stolen. What depths of depravity, breaking into a police station without being caught, must have been pretty smart coppers in the place they robbed, so they could assassinate a fighter for the poor. The tale of two women, 
a threat to society nailed to a cross, so to speak, and a pillar of cultured society overseeing torture in a secret Thai prison so we can enjoy human rights and ensure the world as we know it survives these threats. Finally, the Deputy Supremo of the Hayseed and Sheepshit Party, Bridget McColsey, supports about half the government's giant mind MPs who have come together to bring balance to the energy debate by arguing for coal to be given its proper place in the energy mix. And the government should build new coal-fired power stations, clean, clean coal-fired power stations, part of its rigid belief in the market. Obviously nothing new there, but I raise the issue because Bridget did introduce something new to the debate. Our argument is based on science, something new to us. Uh, but you've always rejected science. That's not true. We have simply rejected scientists who lack the balance our policy scientifically achieves. Scientifically, if we harnessed the energy these people put into seeking balance in the mix, we could power the whole country. Good afternoon. And good afternoon to Mr Kevin Healy. And as I often say at about this time on a Tuesday, you can hear more of Mr Kevin Healy tomorrow morning between 9 and 10 and I do believe that somebody is having a birthday tomorrow so you can guess who that might be so that's City Limits tomorrow between 9 and 10 Hi, I'm Rod Quantock and you're listening to Fill in the Dots, you know who you're listening to Why do I have to tell you who you're listening to? You know who you're listening to You're listening to, yes, Fill in the Dots 3CR Community Radio, you got it right, you've won a giraffe. Uh, we're at 8.55am, we're on digital radio and streaming at 3cr.org.au. 3CR has been making trouble since 1976 and occasionally I've been part of the trouble that's been made. It's a vital part of our uh, media landscape and I'd encourage you to get a hacksaw, an oxyacetylene torch and go up to the Dandenongs and, and bring down all those broadcast towers that aren't 3CR's towers and let's make 3CR the only source of information to an information-starved, dumbed-down Australian community. Written, authorised and spoken by Neil Mitchell. A mass protest of approximately 30,000 Palestinians gathered at the border between Gaza and Israel at the weekend, beginning six weeks of protests, the Great March of Return leading up to the 70th anniversary of Al-Nakba, the catastrophe due to the creation of the State of Israel. Now over a dozen Palestinians are dead and estimates of a thousand injured. And the demonstrations continue as the Israeli army fires tear gas, rubber bullets and live ammunition across the border. Dr Bassam Daly is a representative of APAN, Australian-Palestine Advocacy Network. Bassam, can you give your opinion of the, the media coverage so far of this violence by Israel against Palestinians? There's quite a few reports that are coming up uh, from the Gaza borders uh, about uh, the um, atrocities that Israel committed and uh, the march of her term. I understand that uh, this is quite a... Uh, it's a time for, for Easter. People are, minds are at different, um, topics. 
and uh, we have our own internal issues to deal with. Uh, I think cricket seems to overtake everything. In terms of fairness, uh, globally, uh, we have the New York Times uh, blaming the Palestinians uh, for their own uh, death, in a way. Uh, we have a good article in Washington Post appearing, uh, showing that uh, you know people are being shot in the back um, with no apparent reason. Uh, there's a report came in the Age, uh, again talking about uh, the uh, unarmed protester shot in the back as well. And the ABC did a report about it as well. And today in the ABC 24, they're talking about the spat between uh, Erdogan and uh, Netanyahu about the events of Gaza. Obviously, uh, in comparison to lots of other things, this is much bigger, say, than the poisoning of uh, the ex-spy in the UK, in my view, when 16 people lost their lives and more than 700 were injured. But uh, Palestinians are used to be ignored and their lives are not uh, being regarded as important enough to be reported. How difficult or easy is it to contact people in that area? With social media, it's becoming easier. I've seen lots of videos and reports uh, from Gaza. Uh, I've seen reports from uh, international media from Gaza as well. It's not impossible, but uh, it's difficult in general. Um, Israel, nonetheless, uh, sort of controls a lot of the communication. Uh, We've had reports that uh, they were interfering with uh, the mobile phones of bus drivers. They were giving him wrong directions. So the the media war, in a way, if you want, uh, is ongoing uh, as well. Tell me about the significance of these protests. So uh, Land Day, which is the 30th of March, is something that started in 1976 in response to uh, Israel's continued confiscation of Palestinian land. Less than 5% of uh, historical Palestine now is owned by uh, the Palestinians. And uh, that protest in 76 uh, resulted in uh, six people being shot dead uh, by the Israeli forces. So uh, since then, actually, this day became the uh, international day, or land day. The march uh, that uh, organized uh, by NGOs in Gaza is uh, meant to coincide with this. And it meant continue, to continue until the 15th of May, which is the seven years anniversary of the, um, um, the Nakba, what they called, or the catastrophe, where basically uh, Israel was established and the Palestinians uh, became refugees. So uh, it is a significant milestone or a significant anniversary, uh, I, I want to say. And, um, It also signifies that the Palestinians, especially in Gaza, are sick and tired of 11 years of uh, imprisonment, uh, living in a ghetto. Uh, Two million people are living in 360 square kilometers. And also it's a a way to uh, uh, tell the politicians as as well that uh, they're sick of the politics and they want to live their lives with respect and dignity. So uh, it has multiple uh, angles to it, in a way. Uh, but the main drive behind it uh, is to, uh, the land day and the uh, 70th anniversary to, of, to the Nakba, which is 15th of May. And, of course, we need to focus on the conditions in Gaza where it's uh, a prison. It's, it's locked in by air, by, by sea, by land, including from Egypt. And the people are, many people say, well, the people inside are... are are living a, a slow death. 
That's true. Uh, very few people know that uh, prior to 48, 170,000 Palestinians only lived in the Gaza Strip, not many. And then following the uh, 48 war, uh, it became almost overnight half a million people. Now, uh, the resources in the Gaza Strip is not sufficient to sustain these people, let alone when uh, they are blockaded, as you mentioned, from sea, land, and air, and so on, including uh, the one enforced by uh, the Egyptian side. So the UN report shows that uh, the Gaza Strip will be uninhabitable in, in uh, by 2020. Eighty-plus percent of the um, Gaza water is uh, undrinkable. In fact, uh, because they were drawing a lot of water from the aquifer, uh, seawater has sipped into the aquifer and that became, it became undrinkable. The uh, land they have is not sufficient to uh, maintain the, 200, uh, the 2 million people in there, and the trade is uh, curtailed and controlled by Israel uh, in every sense of the word. So the situation is dire. The unemployment hits the roof. Poverty is dark. Um, I remember only two, three years back where they've been bumped to uh, almost non-existence for 42 days. Um, and very little material has uh, been sent in to rebuild as such. So uh, it, it is a, a, a human catastrophe in every sense of the world. And... Uh, yeah, those who are living in there under these conditions uh, have enough, and uh, think that what you see today is a reflection of that. I'm just wondering about the more than 1,000 that have been injured. I could imagine that the medical situation is very dire there without something like this happening. That's true. Not only that, uh, in some certain parts of, uh, of uh, the Gaza Strip, uh, electricity is only on for four days. Uh, add to that that Israel actually also cut uh, water supply. So, um, uh, yes, you're absolutely right. Uh, the, the, the health system has been stretched uh, before without uh, uh, such incidents. But, uh, yeah, there's a report of um, more than 700 injured and uh, 16 being killed overnight. Uh, around another 30 or 40 have been injured as well from direct chilling and start a fire from the Israeli side. Israel is calculating that it will get away with it, uh, as it did in the past, and uh, this is why our role here in the uh, West is important to, uh, to send a strong message in saying that uh, this is not acceptable, uh, that the Palestinians were protesting uh, non-violently. There were almost 30,000 people in, in next to the border, uh, sitting away by at least 500 meters. Few did get uh, closer to 200 and 300 meters, and uh, you know, there's lots of ways to disperse crowd and shooting them in the back or the head or the leg, in a way, as the Israelis did. And they don't shy away from saying that these are the orders that they give the soldiers, which is really worrying. And I suppose we can't expect the Australian government to say anything against Israel. No, not really. In fact, uh, only um, uh, 10 days ago, uh, in the Human Rights Commission, uh, Australia voted against a resolution to condemn the settlements and the settler abuse of Palestinians. They were only part of uh, four countries in the world that did that, the U.S., uh, Hungary, Togo, and Australia. And there was no explanation why Australia, a country that respects human rights, 
and regards itself as modern and democratic would actually give political support to um, an entity that actually is clearly in violation of all uh, international convention when it comes to human rights. I mean, they, um, if that committee, there's in, uh, tens of other countries who thought that Israel should be held accountable for that, but not Australia. And incomprehensible for me uh, as an Australian that our government actually behave in such manner. And they're absolutely right. We didn't hear anything from uh, uh, the political parties. I saw um, a tweet from uh, Richard Di Natale of the Greens party calling for an investigation, which Israel has already sort of refused to do uh, for obvious reasons, you know, shooting people uh, in the back and uh, using uh, tanks to shell uh, protesters is something that Israel doesn't need to or want to explain uh, to the rest of the world. When you think of other conflicts around the world, there are usually ways for people to support those who are being victimised like this, but it's virtually impossible, is it, for people to send aid or get into Gaza to help the people under siege? Well, uh, yeah, I mean, uh, there's the political uh, side and there's a lot of hypocrisy, especially in the West when it comes to the Palestinian issue. We do have uh, our supporters so who believe in the uh, just cause of freedom for the Palestinians. And uh, there's uh, those individuals who uh, are trying to break the siege. Uh, I'm not sure uh, the listeners would have heard about uh, the uh, flotilla and the uh, attempt uh, multiple times to break the um, maritime blockage uh, by delivering aid uh, through ships to, to the Gaza port. It is difficult to get it in. Uh, Israeli government uh, are so calculating and vicious in a way in that it calculates how many calories a person needs uh, just to remain alive and allow this amount of food to get in into the Gaza Strip. Uh, the Palestinians are saying they're only uh, getting their uh, less than 30% of their needs. Uh, and it's all controlled by Israel. In fact, Israel benefits financially from that as well, which is I mean, it amounts to torture, it amounts to abuse of every human right you can think about. And the problem with that is that there is a political deadlock and that uh, there's no end in sight. So if I'm a guy I'm uh, living in there, not seeing any future for myself and my family, there's no way for me to go into it. Population density is almost 10 times higher than it is in Israel. And uh, I want to march to my freedom in a way. I want to march to to my old village in a way as an expression of of defiance and despair of my situation today. And hence, uh, you know, I do understand why people want to protest their conditions and want a solution. And uh, I'm I'm optimistic that also... um, these initiatives are coming from uh, non-government organizations, although Israel was blaming Hamas for everything. I think it's a failure in the leadership that uh, we are where we are today, but uh, there's two million people who deserve to live freely like everyone else in the world. And who are the NGOs? I don't have a lot of details who they are, and uh, you know that politically it's a little bit hard to um, survive in these environments in a way, but... Uh, I'm told um, with uh, overseeing reports of, uh, with, with confidence that the main instigators of, uh, of these protests were not uh, were not government uh, or political parties. Nonetheless, uh, 
the Hamas and others have um, turned up to these rallies uh, and gave speeches, but uh, the idea behind it in the first place uh, were coming from Gazans themselves, not from political parties, I'm told. It's a long time till the 15th of May. What do you believe is going to happen in these intervening weeks? I think uh, it, it, it appears that uh, things uh, quieten a little bit. It is around six weeks between now and then. I think uh, I hope that uh, nobody loses the lives. I hope that uh, the issue does not escalate. We may expect something on the 15th as the uh, Nakba day. Um, I really can't tell. Things can go really bad shit quite quickly. Uh, there's skirmishes here and there that uh, are being reported. It appears that there's tents and people are willing to stay in there for as long as it takes, or at least until the 15th of May. There was a reported 30,000 people turn up to this, um, to the north of uh, the Gaza Strip uh, on, on Friday. Uh, how sustainable is this? I think they will be there until the 15th, that's for sure. The numbers are much more abundant, and uh, I really hope that... Uh, it continues as it was, uh, and it continued to be as a, an unviolent protest to, uh, to raise attention that these people are living in prison and they want their freedom back. What's been the reaction to the last couple of days in the West Bank? It's relatively quiet in the West Bank. I haven't seen any protests or uh, responses. As people say that um, this can be a trigger, uh, one thing for sure is what we saw a few months ago in uh, Jerusalem in particular and uh, and also in Hebron is that the streets are boiling. People are sick of uh, the status quo and uh, again uh, they're critical of the leadership that things are not happening, uh, especially the youth of course. And uh, we saw uh, sort of uh, individuals taking things into their own hand and um, and doing acts that is not condoned by anyone. So I really don't know what, what this can trigger and if it will trigger anything. Um, I personally believe that violence is, is going to be counterproductive, but I, uh, um, I see that in many cases there's a lot of provocation and, uh, uh, and that uh, can lead to you know, death and injuries. Uh, but the protest last time with the changes that Israel wanted to uh, institute in, uh, in Jerusalem have shown that uh, mass protest uh, does does bring results and that uh, uh, should be endorsed uh, and supported. And the, the idea of what happened in the Gaza is, is similar to that, that we need to have a mass protest population that actually are sick and tired of what's happening. What's the role for APEN at this time? We are a, uh, an advocacy group, trying to advocate for the rights of the Palestinians. Uh, we don't have any influence, uh, direct or otherwise, on what happens in Palestine. Uh, we also expect the right of the Palestinians to make their own decisions and, uh, and strategies. Our focus is in Australia, and uh, uh, mostly in uh, changing government's policy, in engaging with political parties and the media, and in trying to raise awareness to what's happening in there, and to uh, help bring that uh, to bear through through our representatives and our NGOs. Okay, is there anything else you'd like to say? Yeah, I do have, I do have a message to the listeners. Um, this conflict uh, uh, has been going on uh, for a, 
for a very long time. It's something that people should take note of. Uh, it is our responsibility as Australians who were instigators of the division of Palestine in 1947 through the UN Special Committee on Palestine, which actually divided Palestine. Later we, we recognized the state of Israel and we yet to recognize the state of Palestine. So I feel that Australia and, and Baltic Australians have a moral and legal obligation to bring this conflict on and, and to uphold our values of human rights and respect for, for international law also in Palestine. So I urge anyone who can to support this cause because it's a, it is a just cause. Thank you, Basil. Thank you very much. And that's Dr. Bassam Dali, the spokesperson for Australian-Palestine Advocacy Network, speaking to me yesterday. Just a reminder or a notice of a film that's being shown on Saturday in Faulkner. It's a toxic-free Faulkner meeting and they're showing a film as a fundraiser. The film is The Green Chain. And it's a New Zealand film about sawmill worker Joe Harawiwa and his long battle to expose the impact that workplace toxins had on his community. After being afflicted by health issues in the 1980s, Harawiwa notified co-workers getting sick, noticed co-workers getting sick in 1988. He helped found SWAP sawmill workers against poisons and began investigating the effects of exposure to dioxins and efforts to clean up the site. Dioxin is the toxic chemical which still contaminates 102 and 100 McBride Street in Faulkner. The toxic-free Faulkner are going to VCAP, that costs money, so this fundraiser film is a one way to help pay those bills. The address is 95 Major Road in Faulkner. It's the Faulkner Community House and it's this Saturday at 1pm. doesn't cost much, very little. Wage $15, unwage $5, solidarity 20 and children are free. So if you can get right to Faulkner, Saturday at 1 o'clock, they will be most impressed and grateful. And you're listening to 3CR Treaty Now. This is Irene Bolger, former Secretary of the Nurses Federation in Victoria. Throughout the nurses' dispute in 1986, and the waterfront dispute in 1998, 3CR was always there broadcasting the voices of workers in struggle. You're listening to 3CR Community Radio and we're broadcasting live from the Bay to Chicken Strike here in Melbourne. We've just seen all of the thousands of nurses walk through to their meeting and people from different unions showing their solidarity. 3CR, radio for the workers, by the workers, since 1976. On the program last week, internationally acclaimed 
permaculturist Rosemary Morrow spoke about her work in many countries around the world which had suffered wars and other disturbances. Today I'm speaking with a Timorese permaculturalist, Igo Lemos, and we began the interview with a history of agriculture in Timor-Leste, what is known about the traditional farming methods and subsistence methods prior to colonisation by Portugal and then Indonesian occupation. Before the arrival of Portuguese in Timor, Timor pretty much uh, practiced a traditional farming system using they like a nomadic and also they uh, using slash and burn as uh, agricultural practices for uh, clearing the land. But also um, they grow everything naturally and use uh, whatever seeds around. Mainly, uh, they also, it's a good forest at that time and they also, they grow some and also they collect from the forest, like a mushroom, like a yams, uh, wild beans, but also, uh, the farmers themselves, they grow, uh, domestic yam, like a taro, uh, sweet potato, cassava. There is grain, like a back and 4,000 years when the Melanesian people arrived in the island uh, and also people from South China, uh, they arrived there and then they introduced also uh, some seeds. They bring some uh, planting material to the country, to Timor Island, and also they use very uh, simple tools like a digging bar or they, you know... I, I hear the story that they're using wood, they sharpen, and then they use as a uh, for break the the soil, and everything uh, before the you know actually the metal uh, digging bar or hoe shovel arrive. What about animals? Yeah, there is also animal. Uh, they have cows, they have chickens, they have pigs, they also have goats. It's a pretty much like a, every household. They they have food. They also they grow food. They also uh, have animal. Because that time that's the like a barter system. No money, so they're using barter system. They travel, you know, by walking or using horse as a the only uh, transport system they have. So my mom used to. Uh, telling me that when she's still young, uh, they used to walk uh, from the village to village to, for, you know, barter all of those, all sorts of food. And they, yeah, they're sharing. And would fish have been an important part of the diet? Yes. For those uh, people who are living in the coastal area, of course, they are fishing. I don't know what tools they used at time to catch fish. But I think uh, pretty much just using a spear to hunt in the fish. And they started making their own boat. In the mountains, same. They, uh, I remember we live in, in the small village. So we're catching like a shrimp or eel or small fish. It's actually from the river. And the river, very clean at that time. Yeah. The impact of occupation and colonization. Yes, uh, I think start from uh, Portuguese. I think 
one of the the changes when they started introduce a coffee plantation, coffee plantation as a cash crop to Timor Island, and that's expanding uh, pretty much, and especially those areas that are fertile enough to to grow coffee, especially in the mountain area. Then 1960s, 1960s, and Portuguese because of yeah, part of this, but uh, I heard that it's a pressure from uh, you know Green Revolution uh, movement around the world. Portuguese government to implement a Green Revolution type of ideas, uh, unify the crops uh, based on the data. Uh, 1960s. Portuguese starting to adopt uh, like a hybrid seed, uh, like a IR seed, uh, five IR seeds, uh, eight. They introduced the timber to starting like a grow intensive uh, rice plantation. While before that, uh, they also introduced like a dry land uh, rice that you can plant along with uh, corn. But then 1960s, they introduced uh, wetland rice plantation. So Timor is starting to have irrigated rice since 1960s. But rice, just a very small percentage that time. So 1960s, 1963, I think that's a, a peak of food production in Timor, uh, even though economically in terms of uh, money, less, very less money. But almost every household have, you know, sufficient food. It's like a, they really sufficient. And uh, you see rice only very, maybe only 1% or 2% rice. But then they eat corn. They grow corn. They grow uh, taro, sweet potato, cassava. That's the most predominant uh, food crops at that time. And also they have animal, they have vegetables uh, in uh, every areas, and also of course, fish is, is not they they like a domestic. Uh, they don't do fish farm that time, but they they just rely on the sea fish. But then, slightly after the introduction of the rice uh, intensive plantation, the agriculture started to change since that. And the Portuguese government started to introduce a few tractors, machinery, and also I don't know whether at that time introduced fertilizer or not. But uh, of course, with the Green Revolution, that's one of the package. But it's uh, the expansion of rice plantation, not much. So Timorese people still eating variety of uh, food crops. So they still based on traditional diet. They very healthy people because they mainly eat uh, root crops compared to cereal. But uh, when Indonesian occupation 1975, that's the most change of the Timorese uh, traditional diet because rice expansion is uh, very much of the Indonesian government uh, program. So 1982, like a massive rice expansion in, in expansion in Timor, so they're starting to expand rice irrigation and introduce uh, new seeds, of course, with fertilizer, with machinery. And that's how change. And also, uh, Indonesian government uh, gave uh, rice subsidy. 
So you can buy cheap rice in the market, and every uh, civil servant, they apart from their salary, they get a ba- bag of rice every month. So rice is like a fl- uh, flooding uh, the market and subsidies. So people become interdependent. Uh, rice become the main uh, food crops. That's how it changed the agriculture system in Timor from traditional, starting slightly going towards the uh, modern agricultural practices. And also, of course, not only rice, but also uh, starting to use uh, hybrid seeds for vegetables, using chemical fertilizer, using pesticide. This kind of, uh, so Timor is starting to depend more and more on external uh, input. I remember 1997 when the economic crisis hit Asia that time and uh, Timor pretty much, uh, especially the farmers, they're getting hard time to buy agricultural uh, input and the price is very high. Some of the farmers, you know, they're starting, uh, they have a low production because they can't afford to buy external input. So part of my when I was a part of the student movement that time, so we starting uh, a student movement called uh, Organic Agriculture Movement. It's part of the uh, youth, uh, like a youth liberation movement. So one is we look at how to refine or revitalize traditional knowledge of Timorese uh, farming system using like uh, animal manure, using uh, mulch and so on. But that time, because I'm so young and uh, very um, immature and trying to learn about this organic, no many people knows about, you know, permaculture. Or, you know, I didn't never hear about permaculture until uh, 99, late 99, after the referendum. So, yeah, I could say during 24 years of Indonesian occupation, it's changed a lot. You know, people uh, now... Even after independence, Timorese people still uh, depend on rice as the main cause of their meal. Even though the country cannot produce enough rice, but we now imported uh, most of the rice from Thailand, from Laos, from uh, Vietnam, which is for me, it's not in terms of environment, it's no good because we um, transport those food from miles and miles. Second, also impacting uh, health of the people because those rice is growing using chemical fertilizer. They spray pesticide on the food. And Timorese now, uh, compared to my parents' uh, uh, generation, they're way more healthy than us, my generation. Also, what has been the impact on the soil of that rice production? Well, as I mentioned that during Indonesian uh, occupation, they use a lot of chemical fertilizer and some of the the soil is starting to recover. But, you know, it's a depletion of uh, soil fertility uh, during that time. So lucky and uh, we don't get much uh, fert- chemical fertilizer this day and gives open up opportunity for Timorese you know, to starting refine or, you know, find their alternative way to grow uh, food crops uh, rather than dependence on uh, fertilizer from outside. When the permaculture start introduced to Timor uh, late 99, I think... Who was doing that? 
there is a, uh, a permaculture volunteer from uh, Northern New South Wales. His name is Steve Grant. So he came uh, as part of the aid uh, program. So he went there and is looking for you know people to help. Uh, I met him in Delhi, and then he started talking about permaculture. And I don't speak much English. So I keep hearing permaculture, and he showed me uh, some books, and we went to a village outside of Billy. He's starting to show me uh, how permaculture is working. And I, just one week, I falling in love with permaculture until today. And then, uh, even though I don't speak much English, and he asked me to be his translator, so I just explained permaculture through his uh, drawing on the board. Can you explain it to me? Well, uh, for instance, he draw a uh, sort of animal in the pan and then put uh, some uh, organic material like a dry grass or underneath so animal can uh, poo and then we can harvest it uh, as an organic material, as a compost. And also he draw he draw vegetable and then put the compost. So I just, you know, because I'm I'm coming from an agronomist background, I study animal husband, so I understand a little bit about that. And when he's explaining, he's in the drawing on the board, so I I get his, uh, I can read his mind, and then explaining to the participant, they only speak Tetum that time. Yeah, then later I learned bit by bit about permaculture, and... Then we established a permaculture organization in Timor. And who are we? Who are the other people who are interested? Yeah, so, yeah, there is a few people, uh, a group of Timorese. Together we established a permaculture at Timor Leste, Permatil. So this organization flourished until today, and uh, more and more we had a high demand right now and to work on so many projects around school garden project, uh, water conservation, also bioengineering project, uh, agroforestry project, so climate change, and so around natural uh, resource management program. So, so many um, projects that we, we work in this day with, with the government, with uh, you know, international agency like Oxfam, uh, like Plan International, and uh, also one organization from France, CCFD, with German organizations, uh, GIJ. So we're working with so many uh, INGO and also working with local uh, NGO as well to implement permaculture throughout the country. Just pick up on a couple of those issues you just said, the forests and the schools. Were the forests badly damaged during the occupation because of bombs and napan and different things from the Indonesian occupation when they were bombing to try and flush out the gorilla? Yes, that's right. Many forests have been destroyed because that's where gorilla have been hiding. So that's the target, to clear the forest by cutting or burn the forest. So I can't blame Timorese farmers practicing uh, slash and burn, but also uh, military is uh, packing a lot, and they cutting all these uh, wild animals like a bird, Every years when the the, the chance of military um, uh, coming to Timor, they took so many uh, wild birds out of the country, 
And so the forest being the, when we independence, I, my calculation, we only have 15% of the forest left. And of course, it's impacting on agro, agrobiodiversity and also uh, biodiversity in the country. So now after 15 years independence and we're starting to reforest our uh, land and now uh, we're working with uh, school to uh, environmental education to kids and, uh, you know, improve soil fertility using organic material. And now slowly, slowly, the forest come back and also starting to uh, do campaigning on the stopping people burning and cutting down the forest. So slowly, slowly uh, improve. How does it work with the schools? Well, now we have uh, more than uh, 100 school gardens in the country using permaculture because uh, I was working with Ministry of Education for four years so to introduce permaculture into national curriculum. So now we have the permaculture in the national curriculum to implement school gardening. And Permatil, my permaculture organization, is working along with the Ministry of Education to implement school gardening in the whole country. So up to today, we, we already implement, implement more than 100 school gardening, and we're still targeting more. So hopefully by 10 or 10, 15 years, uh, every school will have school gardening. And you also have school kitchens where the children can eat what they grow? Yes, that's that's what our uh, our dream is. But uh, these days we're still targeting setting up the school garden. So when they have school garden and individual school will, uh, you know, free to use school garden not only to harvest the food for the school feeding program, but also we want teachers to use school garden as a living laboratory for teaching any subject. So that's our um, uh, goals. But today we're we just in a phase of setting up school garden. And there is some school already harvest this, uh, the product, their vegetable, and contributing to school feeding program. Also have to train the teachers? Yes, we train the teachers and also train the parents. So parents understand uh, how important is school gardening for their kids so that they can support this program through the school. Because otherwise, uh, Timur is... Uh, Parenting, when the kids outside doing farm, uh, you know, gardening, they think they're not learning anything. So we have to, when we did the workshop, a school garden workshop, we have to invite teachers, parents, and some uh, representative from a student as well. So that everybody's uh, at least uh, in a representative of the community, school community, understand how important is school garden, not only for um, nutrition, but also for other aspects, you know, including a pedagogical uh, approach to education system. Some of the kids, they're learning from school, school garden, and then they take home and implementing their home garden. What our uh, aim is, uh, hopefully, one school garden can impacting the food system of uh, the whole community. So slowly, slowly, the parents are starting to adopt 
school garden system into their home garden. Their children came home and starting to ask their parents about, you know, uh, making compost and uh, build a garden bed and doing living fence and talking about seeds and so on. And the whole family involved in, in this kind of uh, education program. And where do the friends groups in Australia become involved? Now, uh, slowly, slowly, many uh, friend city groups are uh, involved. The one active is uh, ones I live, friends of I live uh, from Moreland City, and also we have uh, friends of Lolotoy. I can't remember the name of the, the town here in uh, Victoria, but also we have friends of Manatutu from Kingston. We have friends of Ainaro from Ballarat. Friends of Lakluta from Wangarata. We have friends of Same, Warandara, and also uh, friends of, um, there is uh, friends of Manatutu, and also there is uh, some friend city outside of Victoria, for instance, uh, friends of Natarbora in Vega, Vega Valley. So there is uh, already a quite number of active friend city, and hopefully uh, there will be more more uh, friend city uh, coming. And do people from Australia go and visit and actually work with the communities in those towns and villages or do they manage support? Yeah, I think the main thing they manage is support financially and also some starting to uh, regularly visit Timor to, you know, look at in a closely how the school garden uh, impacting on the community. And you're here at this time to meet with the groups? Yes, that's 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 the most uh, important of my trip this uh, this time. And also <coughs> from here I'm going to uh, Sydney and then meeting with friends of uh, Hatubaliku in Blue Mountain. And uh, last one at the permaculture conference in Canberra, part of my trip. Busy, busy. Yeah. Thank you so much. Yeah, thank you so much. I've been speaking with Igo Lemos, permaculturist from Timor-Leste, and I should also say a very accomplished musician. Didn't get a chance to um, talk about that, but on the program, the music program last Friday, I think it was Friday, Joe talked to Ego about music and a little bit about permaculture. You're listening to 3CR. The time is 3.57. We know you love our 3CR Radical Radio T-shirts and so do we. They're a bargain at $20 for adults and $15 for kids and come in black, white, grey and a cool light blue. To nab one of these beauties, drop into the station at 21 Smith Street or order by phoning 94198377 or you can visit us online at 3cr.org.au forward slash shop. Come on, you know you want one.
and you're listening to 3CR. Treaty Now. It could be argued what is more important, the health and well-being of a local community or $16 million a year profit for the City Council. This is a situation in the City of Wyndham in the outer western suburbs which is planning the expansion of their rapidly filling Werribee Tip which includes building four new landfill areas within the existing site that can reach more than 30 metres above ground or 44 metres above sea level. The locals through the Western Region Environment Centre is going to court in May to VCAT. I'm talking now with Harry Van Morst about the situation. Harry, the existing landfill in Werribee, have the residents been unhappy about how that has operated in recent years and the impact on them? Yes, over the last few years. There was a landfill there for a long time. It was a very small one. It just took our local rubbish. It was all below ground. So people weren't worried about it and the odours didn't spread. But now, firstly, houses are encroaching on the area far more. And secondly, in 2012, they suddenly went well above ground, 25 metres roughly, around the surrounding ground. And suddenly, of course, the odours became all the more noticeable. Plus, they increased, doubled the amount of waste that they were putting in on a daily basis. So from then on, it's become an eyesore. It's become an smelly old waste mountain basically and a lot of people in the area are very annoyed about it particularly because it's their own council doing it to them. Well it can't be that many more people in the area that would need a bigger tip like that. Does that mean that the rubbish is coming from elsewhere? Yes, 80% of the rubbish that goes to uh, the Werribee landfill in fact comes from other suburbs because a council likes it that way because they make money out of it. Secondly the government made a, a kind of unilateral decision a few years back because landfills are unpopular, uh, they'd not have any more landfills. But what that meant is, given the increase in waste, that the three major ones, two in the west, that's Werribee and Ravenhall, and the Woolert one, will, are now becoming massive waste mountains, basically, and taking all the waste because they wouldn't open up any other landfills. More importantly, they wouldn't actually actively promote alternatives to landfill, better recycling, better sorting, which is where the plastics problem with China has come in, uh, and various alternative technologies such as uh, some of the uh, pyrolysis and composting and so on. So there have been plenty of options, but... um, the local community has been worried about it for some time. So they're going for the cheap alternative? Yeah, well, yeah, and the one that they can control. I mean, the reason they've gone to, um, to EPA to get a works approval for 25 years, which EPA, of course, has granted, unfortunately, uh, is because they want to maintain the landfill and the profits they make out of it. From council's viewpoint, it's no different to any other corporation and it's basically corporate greed at the community and the environment's expense. There must be another issue of why the council has allowed houses to be built close by. 
The, the EPA's got a 500 metre buffer zone requirement for a tip like this. It should be much more. Uh, and as we found everywhere, the, the odours go for about, you know, can easily go for three to five kilometres, particularly when there's an inversion layer. That should have been prevented, but there were a couple of houses already there beforehand, before it went above ground into this massive sort of uh, episode. The council simply allowed uh, a, a big uh, estate there that's now being developed called the Hartley Estate. Uh, it gave all the approvals and um, that estate's going to suffer as a result unless we do something about it. There, there's other other houses nearby and there's, uh, the whole area, of course, is, is Australia's fastest growing uh, urban area at the moment. What other places in Australia or elsewhere are building mountains of landfill rather than filling in holes? Well, apart from Victoria, there's some in Queensland, I believe, that are doing the same. Uh, you'll find that most of the landfill operators uh, want to go higher because it saves them a bit of money, not a lot, but it saves them enough money that uh, they feel it's worth doing. So it's, it's up to the governments and, and EPA and other agencies uh, and local government to actually stop that and to say, no, you know, our, our environment is not for sale. If they can't make their money by keeping it in the ground, then they shouldn't be putting it in the ground. How are they going to control the waste in a mountain? Can you describe how big it's going to be? And it won't be over the whole tip site, will it? Yeah, the whole tip site, they want to be, and they have problems with this, uh, they want it to be at what they call 44 metres uh, AHD, which is about 25 metres above the surrounding ground, or about 30 above where the gateway is, which is pretty high, and that will be the height that has been permitted for the whole premises. The problem with that is that you need at least a, uh, under the regulations, you need at least a 1 in 20 or 5% slope in order to stop the water pooling and uh, uh, wrecking the, the landfill liners. So it's become very difficult now to work out exactly how they're going to manage because they're going right up to the top uh, as high as they can. Uh, so how are they going to manage the slope without going up even further? There'd have to be ramps of some sort for the either the trucks to get up or, or the machines to get up a certain distance to dump it. They've got little roads that they build in there as part of it and they compress it, uh, actually manage to ensure that it's fairly, fairly stable. That's the hope anyway. But the problem we found is that on a number of occasions they've been too steep and they've started to slip and they've had to redo them and so on. It's a very crude system. Even with the plastic liners that they now put in, it's still very crude and inevitably they leak sooner or later uh, into the groundwater as well. And there's another problem with landfills too, of fires, of yeah, materials yeah. catch fire. What happens if there's a mountain? Well, that's part of the problem. I mean, the, the EPA actually has a regulation where they say that these sorts of things are discouraged, waste mounds, because they're more vulnerable to all sorts of things, including weather, uh, which can include fire and so on. They just don't enforce it, that's all. What about increased traffic in the area? Would that be a problem as well? It's, uh, or it already is a problem? The traffic in Werribee is probably as bad as it is in Flinders Street. 
the traffic is a problem and inevitably the, these trucks add to it. The real problem with that though also is the, the greenhouse effect that, that comes both from landfills and from all the transport because we're getting it from all over Melbourne. If we were just getting it locally, the traffic locally could still be you know, problematic but at least uh, we're not sort of you know, driving hundreds of kilometres with all this waste. And how much is the council making out of this tip? They won't show us the full figures, but they um, they claim they're making about $14 million profit each year. It is a fair bit of money, although given the you know, the actual budgets of local government in the you know, 40s or 50s million, million dollars a year, it's not too difficult if they were to lose a bit of that. But we're, we're not saying it has to close. We're saying it must stay below ground, uh, the rubbish. It's a landfill, not a waste mountain, or shouldn't be. Uh, and that the works approvals, which they're now asking for, for 25 years, is far too long because things are changing. And whilst we're a long way behind the rest of the world, we'll, we'll be trying to catch up sooner or later. The arguments are that, that uh, the, the height should be reduced, the quantities should be reduced, the permit time, the time that the, you say, well, you can, you, know, you can do this for the next 25 years, well, it's far too long. We're, we're trying to change it. And it's contrary to government policy. The government's actually been quite right in saying we want to uh, recover the resources, not throw them in the ground, and then bury them. Resource recovery should be the main thrust of all that we're doing instead of landfill, and unfortunately that's still not happening. What's been the inter interaction between the people in the area and the council over the, the last year when this project's been mooted? There's been quite a bit of angst and concern. There was a petition of 2,000 or so, just over 2,000 residents who signed the petition saying that it must stay in the ground. They, of course, just ignored that, basically. They said it's all very good, safe, and it's making lots of money. Some people accept that because they think, you know, we might get more gracious or whatever. But as we point out, Wyndham is the only council in um, uh, Melbourne, Metropolitan Melbourne, that actually has a landfill. Other councils manage without one. Well, they use ours, but they don't need the money. They don't rely on the money for it in order to build their creches and all the infrastructure. We can do that too. And so we keep arguing that obviously our environment is not for sale. And yes, there are other ways of making money. The waste to energy options that we've also been promoting and um, other alternatives will also make money. So council isn't just dependent on this hole in the ground that they're now turning into a mountain. They can get their revenue through other sources like other councils do. We're not very sympathetic with their commercial arguments. Yeah, the, the local community is, is angry about it, but it's also been for uh, last, since, well, since uh, 2012, there's been considerable opposition, but with very little actual uh, outcome has got any real traction with the council. What does the council say to your proposals to manage this waste more economically, more environmentally, with um, oh, all the things that you mentioned before? That is now policy of the government, so the council has to approve it, uh, has to agree with it uh, on paper. Uh, they've got a, a plan, they say, not that there's any real plan, but they've said that uh, by 2040 they hope to have some of these alternatives in place. 2040 is a long way away. 
but it, it, it's funny because at the same time they've asked for a permit for the landfill for 2043. That's a long time though, isn't it? Well, it's a whole generation and that uh, for, well, once this is, if this goes ahead the way it's uh, planned at the moment and EPA gets away with it, then it means that uh, the community has no right of uh, appeal uh, until 2043, which means a whole generation is basically told that we've made the decision, you live with it for the next best part of your life, uh, next 25 years, and you can't do anything about it. It's one of those silly situations where there are no third-party rights, and that's one of the things we're trying to get the government to fix because it's so incredibly undemocratic. So your case is not only against the council, it's against the EPA as well. It is, it is against the EPA. The EPA gave the works approval, and that's what we're appealing at VCAT. Council, of course, is the, is the subject of the matter, and they are spending all their money getting lots of lawyers and uh, consultants to argue their case for them. But the actual, to me, the problem lies with the EPA. They're the ones who gave the approval. Council shouldn't have uh, requested it in that way, I don't think. But given that they did, it was up to EPA to say, well, hang on, our regulations say you can't go and have a mound as opposed to a, a landfill. Our regulations also usually put these works approvals on a cell-by-cell basis, and the cell is a two-year thing. So we're compromising and saying, OK, well, we're happy if you get two cells in advance or three but not 15 or whatever it is at the moment that they're going for. So there's just all those issues that you know, I mean, a lot of the community wouldn't be aware of, but are becoming aware of more and more. It makes it just a, an outrageous situation. And, of course, it's not only the, um, uh, the one that uh, we've got in Werribee, it's also the one we've got on our borders in Wyndham, uh, which is actually in Melton. That's the Ravenall one which is probably the biggest one in the Southern Hemisphere. Not sure whether it is or not, but it's big. It's bigger than the Werribee one. Have you already been to VCAT on this issue? Well, yes. We had to go for a um, preliminary hearing to sort of where they organised the timetable and all the other things. That was held a few weeks ago. And at that hearing, uh, the council tried very hard to have, have us uh, excluded saying that, you know, we have no, no legal standing because we're just a not-for-profit group and saying that we uh, didn't have a case to answer, that there was no case to answer. VCA very clearly uh, said they disagreed with both of those propositions, that we did have stand, legal standing and that um, there was a case to answer. So that, that, that's the only thing we've had with VCA so far. There's a, uh, a compulsory conference coming up couple of weeks and um, at that we'll find out just how much council is willing to give I guess but uh, from what they've said to us in meetings is that they're not going to give an inch. Is the community represented itself or do you have legal representatives? This time around because of Environmental Justice Australia which is a wonderful group of uh, lawyers we've got some, some legal assistance which we haven't had in uh, VCAT hearings too much in the past. So, yes, we'll have some uh, barrister there. We'll fight it as hard as we can. The council must have some very unhappy constituents now. Yes, it has. It's, they don't seem to care, unfortunately. 
But on the other hand, there will be elections again and that will have an impact on some of them, I think. What sort of a council is it? Who's running it? It's a mixture. There's a couple of Liberals, a couple of Labor. Uh, we don't have any Greens in there at the moment. Uh, it's a very multicultural society with a lot of um, new migrants really in it. You know, there's a very large Indian community. They work on slightly different principles and, and uh, values, I think, to what um, a lot of Australians do at the moment in terms of things like recycling because it's not been a part of their culture in the past. Well, it hasn't been a, a, a part of many people's culture in the past, but it is now. It, it is now, and we're getting that sort of support from um, the, the, the whole community, really. The Indian community has been one of the most active in one sense. They're, they're very uh, well-organised and very willing to help with uh, all these sorts of things, including things like the um, Beach Patrol, which uh, we set up a year or two years ago. They're very active in all of that. So things are changing there quite fundamentally, I think. So hopefully within the community there will be more or better knowledge sort of passed around in the new areas. But, but overall, the community is not happy. Council will probably find that out the hard way. Well, they have to change because um, like most places, we're being swamped with rubbish because we've got this throwaway society of mainly plastics and that's been exacerbated now. They've been able to rely on shipping it off to poor countries or off to China to get rid of their waste, but they can't do that now. That was one of the ironies of the whole situation. That um, you know, we, we weren't really recycling at all. We were merely collecting it to export it for others to recycle. That was easy and, and was profitable enough for the people doing it and very little was done to actually uh, set up an appropriate industry in Australia so we can take care of our own waste and re- recover the resources from it. So, yeah, the plastics thing that China... Uh, Ch- China gave about five years' warning that they were going to do this. 2013, they said, this is what we're heading towards. And, of course, the rest of the world just kept dumping it on China. Didn't do anything about it. Europe did a bit and is in a better position than we are. But, um, yeah, I mean, the, the plastics is one, one of the main issues at the moment, but there are obviously a lot of other things that we waste. There are aluminium, even concrete and glass. And when you think of the electronic gadgets that are exported to developing countries and they have children in dreadful conditions going through and pulling them to bits and getting sick, yeah, I used to have radio stuff, but that's, you know, if it makes somebody a profit, somebody will do it, unfortunately. And, um, yeah, it's, it's virtual slave labour in some of those areas. You're gearing up for May? We're gearing up for May. Hopefully uh, we, we can manage it. I mean, the, the real problem with this is that in all of this, VCAT has become that much more expensive. VCAT used to be virtually free but for the community as a whole. And now it's costing us, it's a complex case that is going to go for five days, according to VCAT. That's going to cost us $12,500 just for the fees. Then on top of that, we've got some legal fees and other things uh, things to pay for. So it's, it's very difficult now for community groups to actually go to VCAT and um, raise the money to do it. I thought VCAT was set up virtually all 
or free to give people the opportunity to do that without having to have costs. Exactly. That was the initial um, intent of VCAT and that's how it worked initially. But over the years, that's uh, been eroded, that, that freedom. And uh, now, although you've got a right to appeal, even that has been challenged at times, you have to make sure you pay your way. And so that, that in turn puts the, the advantage usually on the developers and the industry, you know, any government agencies that you want to appeal against. Have they also changed the people who sit on VCAT, the type of people? I don't really know all of their selection procedures for that. Some of the people who sit on VCAT you know, are obviously very good lawyers and very good planners. You just wonder sometimes why they make the decisions they do. But um, in this case, uh, I think we're going to have, have problems because the government and uh, the media have been pushing very hard that we've got a, a waste crisis and everybody's attitude to that is, oh, well, we need more landfill. We're seeing factors precisely what we don't need. And I don't know what the attitudes of VCAT will be. They're constrained, too, by just by the legal framework in which they have to work. Sometimes they might have personal feelings feelings about things, but the law doesn't uh, require it. How many people sit at a time? It depends. The most I've been involved with uh, have been three people on the panel. Usually it's one or two, and for a complex case it'll be at least two, I would think, for us. And they sometimes select them on the basis of what their knowledge and understanding of the particular issue is, as opposed to just their legal standing. Look, it's, it's not the world's best system. New South Wales has a, an actual um, environmental court that is particularly aware and um, learned about uh, the way that the environment operates and the environmental principles rather than just the way the law operates. So they can take a number of steps that our, our VCAT uh, system doesn't seem to support. OK, Harry, we wait and oh. see. We'll wait and see. We'll keep you informed anyway <laughs> over the next month or two. Uh, and, of course, there's a, a, the other one at Ravenhall that's uh, going to be heard in August. And what's the issue there? Exactly the same. Great big waste mountain uh, and a 20-year, 20 20-plus 20 years uh, expansion uh, allowed by, uh, by, by the EPA. Great for the western suburbs, isn't it? Yes, yes, we seem to be still the dumping ground for the rest of Melbourne. I I don't think people would mind necessarily taking some uh, waste from other areas if that was necessary. But the argument clearly is that it's not necessary. There are clear alternatives. There's companies out there waiting to implement them and all they get is, is obstacles and hurdles. The EPA still hasn't worked out the way that they're going to even give a works approval for, for these alternative ways of dealing with waste and getting resource recovery systems up and running. So we're a long way behind the rest of the world. What's the status of the EPA at the moment? There was a review, is that finished? Uh, the review itself was finished, yeah, that was finished last year. And uh, what's happening at the moment is that the government, uh, well, the various departments of the government are trying to put together the legislation so they've already passed one new bill uh, uh, as a result of the um, inquiry and they're now looking at how to go to the more subtle uh, regulatory aspects of the legislation that they're going to implement if it's done the way that the 
inquiry suggested, it would be, you know, a good step in the right direction. But the, the, the problem partly is it's not just a question of giving the EPA more resources and um, more powers, because the existing powers they've got they don't uh, utilise anyway. And it's partly an internal culture and a willingness to to focus on prevention rather than, than uh, simply controlling the amount of pollution that goes out and things of that kind. And that's not just something that's up to the, you know, the governments, that's up to the EPA. I've been speaking with Harry Van Morst, who's the Director of the Western Region Environment Centre, about the landfill, Land Mountain, that they're proposing for the Werribee Landfill. 23 minutes past five. Hoy there, shipmates. This is Captain Trash from the Port Phillip Echo Centre in St Kilda. Did you ever hear the crow in the sky going, Ah, ah, that stands for reduce, reuse, recycle. And you heard it first on 3CR. Like in Canada and in Australia, they cannot discharge tailings directly into the riverways. But in Pogara, they discharge their tailings in the waterways and they kill us and they say it's okay. You are just being killed for trespassing. Subscribe to 3CR, bringing you voices and opinions the mainstream media don't dare touch. They have the exclusive right to extract the mineral below six feet, but that exclusive right does not permit them also to kill people. Who does the killing? The company has a specially arranged security forces. Subscribe today. Call 9419-8377. Earlier this morning I spoke with journalist and researcher Nick McClellan and the focus was two events in April. The first, the 25th Commonwealth Heads of Government meeting. It's happening in London this year from the 16th of April. And the second is the 60th anniversary of detonation of the hydrogen bomb in the Pacific. And I asked Nick what the connection was. Well, 60 years ago, Britain was looking to develop its own nuclear weapons capacity. The Americans, after the Second World War, had restricted the transfer of nuclear technology under the uh, McMahon Act because of fears of Soviet spies infiltrating the British establishment, fears that were recognised with people like Kim Philby. And so Britain began developing its own nuclear weapons, started by the Labour government uh, immediately post-war, but continuing under Conservatives such as Winston Churchill, Sir Anthony Eden and then Harold Macmillan. But uh, the British uh, couldn't develop or test their nuclear arsenal in Europe and so they looked to the Commonwealth for firstly places to conduct nuclear testing and then uh, for the technical and practical support that they needed to operate a nuclear testing area halfway around the world. And so uh, this month, April 2018, is the 60th anniversary of the Grapple-Y test. This was a hydrogen bomb test conducted under Operation Grapple, which was the code name used for Britain's development of thermonuclear weapons, hydrogen bombs. These are much bigger weapons than the atom bomb. Um, the atom bomb that destroyed uh, Hiroshima was about 12 to 15,000 tonnes 
of TNT equivalent, so-called 12 kilotons. But a, a thermonuclear weapon, a hydrogen bomb, is about a million tons of TNT. So if you think about the destruction of Hiroshima, a hydrogen bomb is, is vastly more powerful. And indeed, the Grapple Y test in April 1958, held in the Central Pacific, was three megatons, nearly three megatons, so nearly three million tons of TNT explosive. It was uh, the biggest nuclear detonation conducted by the United Kingdom, and indeed it spread radioactivity all over the military task force and over Christmas Island, which is where the tests were held. That's today part of Kiribati, but in those days was a British colony, uh, the British Gilbert and Ellis Islands colony. So this month is quite symbolic. Um, the Anglosphere is coming together. The Commonwealth is coming together in London, uh, hosted by uh, Prime Minister Theresa May. As Britain pulls out of Europe uh, after Brexit, they're looking to strengthen ties with uh, the Commonwealth. But uh, by coincidence, uh, this year's the anniversary of a British uh, a nuclear test that irradiated not only their own troops, but also many people from other Commonwealth countries. What were those other Commonwealth countries? Well, indeed, Australia was centrally involved in developing the British nuclear weapons program. Going right back to the beginning, Britain first developed atomic weapons before they went on to develop these massive hydrogen bombs. That program began in Australia. Um, at Montebello Islands uh, in 1952, the British tested their first uh, nuclear weapon. They put a small nuclear device in uh, HMS Plym, an abandoned, uh, decommissioned uh, World War II uh, naval vessel, and they vaporised it um, off the coast of uh, Western Australia at the Montebello Islands. Having worked out that capacity, um, they then decided to continue the development of atomic weapons in Australia. And so the Menzies government, well indeed, Prime Minister Sir Robert Menzies, not the government, uh, made the decision to proceed. With support from Howard Beale, the Minister for Supply, and one or two ministers, uh, Menzies agreed with the British that they could conduct nuclear tests in Australia. And uh, that uh, process uh, uh, began with testing at Emu Field in the deserts of South Australia and culminated at Maralinga on the land of the Anungu people, uh, Maralinga Juritja land uh, in South Australia. And overall, 12 nuclear tests were conducted in Australia. And they're pretty well known. Maralinga is a name that will resonate to many Australians because of the destruction of country, uh, the plutonium contamination that lingers to this day, impact on Aboriginal communities, uh, people like Yami Lester, who passed away last year, who was uh, blinded after a black mist rolled across following the totem test in 1953, the impact on soldiers who were lined up backs to the blast. But we were involved in all sorts of other more subtle ways. Um, the beginning of uranium mining at Mary Kathleen in Queensland in the 1950s was very much tied to uh, the development of uh, nuclear materials um, that could be used for Britain's program. So we've supplied reactors in Canada and indeed in the uh, United Kingdom um, as a crucial contribution to the nuclear weapons program. So it wasn't just the 12 detonations of atomic weapons in Australia. There was a whole range of activities that Australia undertook. And this was done by Prime Minister Menzies without even taking it to Cabinet, let alone Parliament. What was the contribution of New Zealand? New Zealand at the time, too, uh, supported empire. Um, during the um, Second World War, New Zealand trained about 10,000 sailors. Um, HMS NZ uh, Taranaki was a naval base in New Zealand, and they trained lots of sailors who served on British 
ships during the war. And after the war, New Zealand bought 12 surplus World War II British frigates to create, really, the Royal New Zealand Navy. And so uh, New Zealand's Navy in 1948 was based on these uh, ships that had been been built uh, but were no longer uh, used as uh, Britain wound down its wartime operations. When um, the atomic testing had happened in Australia, an agreement was signed in 1956 where already tests had been going on since 52, um, and after the mosaic tests, uh, Robert Menzies signed an agreement with the British, then Prime Minister Sir Anthony Eden, to keep the testing going for another 10 years. But they wouldn't allow thermonuclear weapons to be tested because there was massive awareness across Australia about radiation. Um, scientists like Hedley Marston and so on began campaigning um, about the clouds of radioactivity that were floating across the Australian continent following the atmospheric nuclear tests, including to Adelaide and other places. Were the ordinary people aware of this? There was growing public opposition, and that grew particularly after 1954 when the Americans detonated a, a, a weapon called Bravo in the Marshall Islands, which contaminated most of the Marshall Islands, and indeed a Japanese fishing boat named the Lucky Dragon. And thanks to the 23 sailors on the Lucky Dragon that were irradiated, they got back to Tokyo, and uh, the death of one of those sailors and the illness of the others um, really raised international awareness that hadn't been raised by a bunch of Aborigines being irradiated or a bunch of Marshall Islanders being irradiated since 1946. But the Japanese fishing boat really became an international symbol. And at that time, there was massive popular opposition growing and uh, right across the Pacific, in, in the book I've written, Grappling with the Bomb, which looks at the history of this period, it shows there were petitions from uh, right across the Pacific Island countries, all colonies in those days, but from the Cook Islands, from Samoa, from Fiji, opposing the British nuclear testing program. Um, there were protests by Aboriginal people and uh, some supporters in Australia. You know, the Maori poet uh, Hone Tufare wrote a poem um, comparing the tree of life and the tree of death and saw the hydrogen bomb as the tree of death. Uh, the British-born author Neville Shute became an Australian and wrote famously in 1959, uh, On the Beach. It was a, a, a book that sold four million copies which over, the, over time, which is a pretty amazing book. Uh, many book writers would love to sell four million copies. And that was made into a Hollywood movie with Fred Astaire and Gregory Peck, Arthur Gardner. It was a big hit in those days and had a very dystopian view of uh, the destruction of the planet by uh, hydrogen bombs. In Japan, uh, um, the military occupation had banned uh, public discussion of nuclear weapons in the bombing of Hiroshima, and the military occupation under MacArthur continued till 1952. So for years, the Japanese couldn't talk about what had happened at Hiroshima and Nagasaki, except at hushed tones. But the, after the Bravo test in 54 and the Lucky Dragon, the Japanese sailors being irradiated, there was this flourishing of debate about nuclear power and nuclear weapons. Famously, the Godzilla movies in 1954, just after Bravo, uh, Ishiro Honda, Japanese film director, made the first Godzilla movie. Those who are into sci-fi will know Godzilla was a, a monster woken from the depths by American nuclear testing. And uh, he rampaged across uh, Japan, destroying urban centres, and Godzilla movies have been made forevermore. Back to New Zealand. New Zealand was caught up in this, caught up in this turmoil between their opposition to nuclear weapons but their loyalty to the Anglosphere. And after Menzies said that they couldn't test nuclear weapons in Australia, hydrogen bombs in Australia, the United Kingdom went looking elsewhere. They went to the Americans, 
to use the testing ground in Nevada or in um, the Marshall Islands, but this was still the height of the Cold War, and the Americans said no. So they turned to New Zealand and asked to use the Kermadec Islands, uh, which are uninhabited islands um, um, midway towards Tonga, and New Zealand decided, uh, after some discussion, uh, Prime Minister Sidney Holland at the time finally said no, because, to use his diary, it would have been a political H-bomb for him at home to have allowed nuclear weapons testing on New Zealand soil. And so the British turned to one of their colonies, which was then the Gilbert and Ellis Islands colony. Those were islands spread across the central Pacific, several archipelagos, the Phoenix Island, the Line Islands, what's today Tuvalu and Kiribati, and the Line Islands. They found uh, Christmas Island and Molden Island, two um, largely uh, isolated atolls that might be used. And so from 1956, a military base was built there, and New Zealand played a crucial role in providing logistic support. Royal New Zealand Air Force planes, for example, were were used in uh, uh, transporting a whole range of equipment and supplies, and New Zealand agreed that they would send two frigates, uh, two of the British frigates that they got after the Second World War, to join the British Naval Task Force that sailed literally halfway around the world and uh, set up this massive military base. Um, Over the time of Operation Grapple, 14,000 British troops were deployed. But there were also uh, 551 New Zealand sailors, also a number of Fijians uh, came from the the Fiji military forces, Fiji being a British colony at the time, uh, and so on. So you had Australia, New Zealand, Fiji, and other Commonwealth countries involved in supporting what was effectively a Commonwealth bomb, um, with Britain taking the lead. And the impact of that bomb? Well, it was significant. There were nine tests on Malden Island and Christmas Island, three on Malden, and then six more. And uh, the veterans who were there, British, New Zealand, Fijian, as well as the Gilbertese descendants, there were plantation workers on the island who were used as labourers for this whole military operation. Many of them are living with health problems. And uh, in my book, Grappling with the Bomb, I've interviewed a lot of people still alive who talk about the challenge for their family, for their colleagues, for their friends who've died, from a whole range of illnesses, cancers, leukaemia, other problems with sterility and reproductive health, um, that they attribute to their time on Christmas Island. This month, the anniversary of the Grapple-Y test was an important time of that. It was a massive, massive nuclear detonation off the southeast point of uh, Christmas Island, but there were rainstorms and the wind blew contaminated fallout back across the Naval Task Force and across the camp and indeed the village where the Gilbertese uh, plantation workers were living. So many veterans claim that the Grapple Y test was the one that caused many of the problems that linger to this day with people's health. The uh, uh, New Zealand uh, frigate HMSNZ uh, Pukaki, after the test, they were some uh, 80-odd kilometres away from the test when it was conducted, but then the ship was sailed through Ground Zero right underneath the area where the mushroom cloud had been dispersed um, up in the atmosphere. So after the test, this New Zealand warship was sailed right through Ground Zero where the uh, bomb had gone off close to the uh, ocean surface. Um, so the New Zealanders, so the Fijians, the Brits claim to this day that uh, their health problems were related to ionising radiation either ingesting or inhaling uh, hazardous particles of things like plutonium, cesium-137, other problems, uh, other isotopes that can cause significant health problems.
I'm speaking with journalist and researcher Nick McClellan and this is Melbourne Community Radio Station 3CR with Joan Bartlett about first a meeting, the 25th meeting of the Commonwealth Heads of Government in London and the 60th anniversary of the dropping of a ginormous, no other word for it, hydrogen bomb in the Pacific. Well, halfway across the world you've got another Commonwealth country, Canada. What was there? Contribution. Well, Canada played an important role too in, in, in two ways. Uh, firstly, Canada set up a nuclear reactor, one of the earliest uh, nuclear reactors, ostensibly for um, power generation, but really to provide materials for nuclear weapons. And so the tritium used very early in uh, the British nuclear weapons came from Canada. And because the Americans had refused to allow the British uh, to use American nuclear technologies and nuclear materials, the United Kingdom turned to countries like Canada and Australia. So we've supplied the uranium. The Canadians developed a very early generation nuclear reactor. And that was a crucial component in developing the tritium and, and plutonium and so on for the British nuclear program. Secondly, of course, Canada provided air bases to build the bomb in England, to literally manufacture the components, but then get them to mid-equator central Pacific involved flying them around the world and so uh, Canadian air bases were used as stopping points on the way so that planes could land in Nova Scotia and then across uh, towards Vancouver to refuel uh, before flying through Honolulu and um, arriving then at Christmas Island. It's a vast distance, thousands of kilometres, so Canadian air bases were central and in the archives we found letters um, from British Prime Minister Harold Macmillan to his New Zealand, Australian, Canadian counterpart asking for support. All of them said yes. Menzies, Sydney Holland in New Zealand, Diefenbacher, the newly elected Prime Minister in Canada in 1957. But all of them said, please don't publicise it. It'll cause political problems for us at home. So we're happy to give you the support, but don't ask us to talk about it publicly which is all in the archives and, uh, and quite telling uh, in the way in which the Anglosphere Commonwealth countries banded together at that time in support of uh, British strategic policy and British military policy. And then, of course, you've got the islands in the Pacific who didn't have a lot of say in anything. Yeah, and a lot of them didn't want this to go ahead. What were they told? Not much. <laughs> and there's enormous secrecy about this whole operation but it was a massive operation. There were 14,000 British troops uh, involved. Yeah, you couldn't keep it quiet, could couldn't you? Couldn't keep it quiet. Well, they tried. The decision to proceed with hydrogen bombs rather than atomic bombs was taken in June 1954. But how could you explain to the people in the Pacific what was happening if you're not going to tell them the truth? Exactly. Well, they worked it out. The decision to proceed was taken in June 1954, but it was only publicly announced in the British Parliament in February 1956, so nearly two years later before the Cabinet decision to proceed was there. And the reason they announced it in Parliament was that they had to build a massive base on Christmas Island. There was an old World War II airstrip made out of limestone coral and they had to build concrete and tarmac airstrip big enough to take the jet bombers that would then proceed to fly around and drop the bomb as the nuclear test. So thousands of troops were deployed and, and, you know, everything from graders to tarmac to, you know, all sorts of stuff were brought from Korea originally, troops in, British troops in Korea, and then from England. 
Um, and that's where New Zealand and Fiji and other places played a role. And so many Fijians volunteered. They thought it was a great adventure to go and work there. And it was only when they got there that they were told, oh, by the way, we're letting off a hydrogen bomb. So I've interviewed a lot of the Fijian survivors who were there at the time, and uh, none of them were told what they were going for. They were, it was a big adventure. They were told they were going to join the Navy and get some training, which they did on aboard British warships. And then they witnessed the, the nuclear bomb and lived with the consequences of these massive detonations. The famous thing where the soldiers and sailors were lined up either on the deck of a ship or on land with their backs to the blast as uh, the, these massive megaton nuclear weapons were detonated at the southeast point of Christmas Island. Then they turn around to watch the famous mushroom cloud rising into the sky. And interviewing veterans now in their 80s, they were pretty hopeless about many dates and details, but they could all vividly describe the awesome power of this bomb going off, this massive, massive thing. And I think there was not only involvement and a sense of adventure from some of them, but there was opposition from the Pacific at that time. And many Pacific Islanders realised that the threat to the Moana, the threat to the ocean, was significant. And so you had protests from many Pacific countries against American and British nuclear testing right through the 1950s. People sort of think of Greenpeace and the uh, uh, campaigning against the French as the sort of anti-nuclear spirit that began later. But right back into the 1950s, there was protests. So Samoa, still a New Zealand colony at the time, sent a formal complaint to the Trusteeship Council, the United Nations Trusteeship Council, which had set up post-war colonial relationships in the Pacific. And uh, the vote was 9 to 1. Only the Russians backed the Western Samoa protest. The New Zealand delegate on the UN Trusteeship Council voted against the protest. The Cook Islands, the Council of Ariki, the High Chiefs, formally complained to the Rarotonga Island Council, which was the advisory body advising the governor in the Cook Islands, which was the closest island group to the testing sites. In Fiji, the Fiji Times, English language paper, and uh, Indo-Fijian papers, Jagriti and others, uh, protested against the tests in 1957. So there was widespread opposition in the Pacific to uh, uh, the use of the Pacific land and ocean as a testing ground. Same in Australia. You know, Aboriginal people were, were, were horrified by what was happening, but their voices didn't carry into the high levels of government. They didn't get support from white Australians? They did from some. There was growing opposition in Australia. It was interesting. We found in the archives some um, Elizabeth Tynan, who's a researcher, uh, has written a wonderful book about Maralinga uh, called Atomic Thunder, found some great documents in the archives uh, looking at um, press reaction to the atomic testing. And they found that early in the testing, 1952-53, popular opinion in Australia was, was pretty much supportive of the British effort. You know, we were supporting empire. This was just after the Second World War, so fear of Japan and, and so on was very strong. It was the time of the Cold War too. Australian and troops were fighting alongside the Brits and the Americans in Korea. Uh, fear of communism was very strong. But after the Bravo test in 1954, public opinion began to swing away. And after many scientists uh, began to complain about radioactive contamination in Australia, um, there was a swing in public opinion. So by the late 1950s, there was widespread opposition in Australia. 
and uh, that was driven, of course, by the left, by trade unions, but also by Aboriginal groups. And the Council on Aboriginal Relations uh, had support from a mixture of people on the left and also groups like the Quakers and the Women's International League for Peace and Freedom and others who were actively campaigning against the nuclear arsenals at that time. What did they think they were going to do with a bomb of that size? Well, the idea was that it would deter the Russians. And the whole notion of this was that uh, this was based on deterrence. But it was also a way that Britain, as a declining empire, could stay on the high table of international affairs. After the Second World War, of course, the United Nations was created and five countries became permanent members of the uh, UN Security Council over time. And in the early days, of course, Britain and France, who were both victors in the war against Nazi Germany, but also incredibly weakened um, after the war, financially, politically, morally, they wanted to stay as world powers. And so uh, having the bomb kept them on the high table of international affairs, whereas the Americans and the Russians were the two superpowers at the time. But when you think of the cost of building these weapons at a time, as you said, Britain was in a very bad way, the people were hungry, their houses were bombed, whatever, and yet they were willing to spend but unlimited most, amount of money. Most of this was done in secret. Clement Attlee, who began the nuclear program um, in 1946, the Labor government, post-war Labor government, elected after that and, and was presented as an anti-austerity government, um, Ernest Bevan, the Foreign Secretary at the time, deeply anti-communist, said we have to have the bomb and it has to have a Union Jack on it. I'm paraphrasing, but uh, that was his sort of sentiment. And the decision to proceed with the nuclear weapons program was taken by five people, not the full British cabinet, and they spent a hundred million pounds before it was brought to Parliament. And so, over t- you know, nearly two years later, before there was a parliamentary statement that Britain was developing its own nuclear weapons program. So a hundred million pounds, which is a lot of money in 1946, 47. They'd have to borrow that money from somewhere. Well, a lot of it they got from the Americans. And this was the tension that Britain had been a central ally in the American effort, the Manhattan Project, to develop nuclear weapons. Uh, British physicists like Sir Sir William Penny and others uh, were centrally involved in the Manhattan Project um, with a lot of the theoretical science coming. The Americans were very good at engineering, but many of the scientists were people coming from the United Kingdom and and, uh, also from uh, fleeing Nazi Germany. And the 1946 McMahon Act, where the Americans were paranoid about Soviet infiltration of of this, uh, Klaus Fuchs, the Soviet spy who uh, handed over a lot of nuclear secrets and so on, they put this ban on nuclear transfers. So Penny, who'd been involved in the Manhattan Project during the Second World War, turned to the Commonwealth. And that's where, at the time, Australia, New Zealand, Canada and others were involved in building the Commonwealth bomb. I think the really important thing to realise is, though, that the world has changed. And as the Commonwealth heads of government comes together this month in London, many of the countries that we're talking about have stepped away from the belief in nuclear deterrence and the belief that nuclear weapons makes us safer. Classically, New Zealand, our closest neighbour. New Zealand's still a member of the ANZUS Alliance, but New Zealand declared its territory and waters free of nuclear weapons in 1987. That's a long time ago. And uh, New Zealand is actively campaigning on nuclear questions internationally. The new Ardern government, uh, Jacinda Ardern, appointed 
uh, a Minister for Disarmament um, in her cabinet. Um, can you imagine Australia having a Minister for Disarmament even in a Labor government? Um, I don't see it coming in the shortened government, let me tell you. Canada? Canada, Trudeau has made some steps about NATO and first use, although Canada is very much integrated into NATO um, through NORAD, uh, the North, uh, northern region. But all the small Pacific countries that were entangled at this time, um, you know, New Zealand, Fiji, Samoa and others, have all signed the new treaty on the prohibition of nuclear weapons, a treaty that was adopted in July last year uh, by 122 countries to one, uh, which now has, I think, 57 countries signed it at the, uh, the last count and uh, will come into force when 50 countries actually ratify it. That process is, is, will happen, I think, over the next year. Not only our Pacific neighbours, you know, like Fiji, Samoa, Kiribati, uh, Tuvalu, uh, New Zealand, but also many of our Asian neighbours have signed this. Um, uh, Indonesia, Vietnam, Philippines, uh, uh, Thailand, other countries in Southeast Asia have signed on to this treaty. As we've discussed before, Australia hasn't. Abbott and Turnbull government are, are totally committed to the, um, the American concept of extended nuclear deterrence. Uh, where we provide uh, services to the U.S. military through, for example, Pine Gap, which is in, centrally involved in nuclear weapons targeting and uh, targeting conventional weapons as well. Uh, but Pine Gap is a major command control base in central Australia and deeply integrated into American nu- nuclear warfighting strategies. So Australia has not uh, um, been involved, indeed actively opposed the process um, for the Treaty on Prohibition of Nuclear Weapons. And so as Chogham gathers this month in London, in the 21st century, the, the coincidence that in the 1950s countries were willing to support empire, were willing to support the Anglosphere, were willing to support um, the development of nuclear weapons to maintain Britain's role on the high table of international affairs. But now Britain is in mayhem with Brexit. Um, now Britain faces enormous social problems and the Britain of today is not the Britain of the 1950s, let alone the Britain of the Second World War and Churchill's Darkest Hour, which is in the movies now, you know, British trying to uh, recapture that, that spirit of, of the time. And um, many countries have decided that their loyalty to the Anglosphere doesn't transcend their loyalty to humanity. And so countries like New Zealand have said, we want to act on climate change, we want to act on nuclear weapons, Many of our Pacific neighbours who will be attending the Commonwealth meeting will be you know, raising issues about climate change. And frankly, Australia's stuck in the 1950s. We're locked in behind the British and the Americans on nuclear policy. And yet the world's changing pretty rapidly. Just wondering what will it be like in Kiribati and neighbouring countries when they, the 50th anniversary, what day was it, the big one? So on the 28th of April, it's the anniversary of the Grappa Y test, and this year, a group of uh, former servicemen from uh, Britain will be travelling to Christmas Island. Uh, they'll be joined by some New Zealanders and I think some Fijians, although they can't afford the airfare. These are guys in their 80s, uh, but they're still campaigning for compensation, for recognition. Um, unlike um, the French and the Americans who set up compensation schemes for survivors of their nuclear testing programs, the British still refuse to provide a general compensation scheme and many cases that have gone through the courts have failed without the proper proof required to show causation that your leukaemia or your cancer was caused by ionising radiation rather than from smoking or other things. 
Uh, so Britain still today continues to resist the call from this. On the, uh, this month, veterans from Fiji and New Zealand are issuing a joint letter, an open letter, to Chogham and to the British Prime Minister calling for recognition and compensation. So there will be, uh, you know, uh, attempts to remind the world what happened 60 years ago that Britain still hasn't cleaned up the mess that they created in the Pacific. They chose these supposedly vast empty spaces, the deserts of South Australia, the islands of Kiribati, as a place to test these noxious weapons and leaving contaminated land and ocean forevermore. Um, Plutonium lasts for 24,400 years. These are sacrifice zones and always will be. Um, And the veterans still in their 80s are still campaigning to get people to pay attention. So I think it's really important. But there is movement. The new treaty on the prohibition of nuclear weapons has specific clauses calling for assistance to nuclear survivors. It's a first really major international disarmament treaty that obliges parties to the treaty to provide assistance to nuclear survivors, those in Japan, uh, those around the test sites, be they Semipalatinsk in, in, in Russia, Mururoa, Maralinga and so on. So it's a major breakthrough for survivors and the, the veterans are hoping to remind citizens in the United Kingdom that there are other ways. And, you know, people say, oh, you can't do anything about this, um, But here we are, every day the papers are talking about denuclearisation of the Korean Peninsula. How do we move forward uh, in this? And, you know, the British nuclear weapons program is in fact amongst the frailest. Just a couple of years ago, the British government agreed to renew Trident to spend £205 billion, £205 billion on renewing their Trident missile system aboard the... uh, the Vanguard submarines, um, they, they have American-bought missiles, each carrying multiple nuclear warheads, and they sail around the oceans to provide Britain's deterrent capacity, and many British citizens think this is a waste of time. And indeed, when the vote to renew Trident came up in the House of Commons, 58 out of 59 Scottish MPs, Scottish members of Parliament, voted no, voted against renewal. And the Scottish National Party, and indeed the Labour in Scotland, has said that they want to create a nuclear-free Scotland if and when an independence referendum is successful. The last referendum, a couple of years ago, 45% of people voted for independence, and it's not out of the question in the next five or ten years that Scotland will go back to the polls and this time vote for independence. That would mean that the missile submarines based in the Clyde, in the Faslane and other bases in Scotland would have to be removed. And that would be a significant debate in Britain. Would it be worth the cost of establishing new bases at Portsmouth or somewhere else to host next-generation submarines? That debate will happen possibly with a Labour government headed by Jeremy Corbyn, a card-carrying member of the Campaign for Nuclear Disarmament. So it's not out of the question that in the next five or ten years we're going to see a massive debate in the United Kingdom about whether Britain should retain nuclear weapons whether Britain should not be one of the first nuclear weapons powers, following South Africa and Kazakhstan and others, to say, we give back our weapons. We say no, um, and we step away from nuclear deterrence as the best form of national security. That's where the voice of the veterans, the voice of the Pacific Islands, the voice of our colleagues across the ditch in New Zealand um, is so important, 
because it may seem fantastic to think of a world without nuclear weapons, but we now have a treaty banning nuclear weapons. It should come into force in the next year or two, and most of our neighbours have signed it. Australia hasn't, and that's part of the debate that we have to have on this anniversary as uh, Britain tries to think about what sort of commonwealth do we want. And a great big thanks to researcher and journalist Nick McClellan. And if you're interested in his latest book, Grappling with the Bomb, Britain's Pacific H-Bomb Tests, it's um, published by ANU Press and um, in good bookstores, as they say. That's all for me for today. I will be back next week at four. Dumbo Law are having um, Easter holiday today, Tuesday. Not quite sure, but that's what they want. So we'll just go off with some music. And as I said, I'll be back next Tuesday at four. Bye for now.